so this morning's passage introduces us to a very complex family dynamic between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. It's a, it's a complicated story and it's kind of a difficult passage. And there would be some temptations, I think, to either skip over it altogether and find something that seems a little bit more clearly applicable to our lives, or to just kind of skim across the top and not necessarily plumb the depths of what's going on. And I want to do neither of those. Either skip over, the, over it altogether, nor just stay at a surface level, but see, there is real grace for the barren being presented here in Galatians 4. And the first thing that's important as we come to this passage is we just stop and consider the family dynamic that's laid out here. It is a sticky, messy, complicated situation. And so I wonder if this morning you wouldn't just, in your mind's eye, try to envision the family room here. Maybe it's exactly like the family room that you've been in or grown up in. But it's a family who's felt the agony of barrenness for decades. Longing for a child and no child comes. Month after month, there's no child. There's great agony there. And it's compounded by the fact that God said he would give a child. And so there's not only the barrenness that's being considered, but also the apparent abandonment from God. God, you said you would do this and you haven't done this for decades. You can see yourself in that family room with the the messiness there and the pain and the suffering. You mix in a, a broken family with illegitimate children gathering around. And this is just not a clean Sunday morning, come in and see what God had to say kind of text. This is tough. And I would imagine if we were back with Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and it would be the same for us today. It would be easier just to numb ourselves with distraction than to actually engage and try and grapple with and deal with what is being presented here. Maybe you know that it feels like the only way forward is to numb yourself with distraction. But what Paul would say is there's a historical reality being laid out here that also corresponds, that also describes a spiritual reality. And that's why the, the sermon title is Grace for the Barren. Because Sarah badly wanted a child, and no matter how hard she tried, no matter whatever she did, there was no child. And maybe you feel that way spiritually, like you are too old to be used by God. Maybe you are spiritually empty. Maybe you're spiritually barren. And you wonder if God could use someone like you, someone who's failed like you, someone who hasn't measured up like you someone who is getting older like you. And friend, I want you to know this morning, there is grace for you in this passage. That God says, I can use you because I'm gonna choose to use you, not because you are that great and you have that much to bring to the table. The reality for all of us is we work hard to keep the masks on, don't we? Say, I'm not really spiritually barren, I'm not really spiritually empty. I'm doing all right, I'm here on Sunday, I'm watching the live stream. 
We don't want people to know, we don't want them to know that gnawing emptiness inside of ourselves. And Paul says, I'm going to speak to that because it's real. We pick up this story in the context of Galatians. Galatians 1 and 2, Paul has defined the gospel. So here's what it is. And then he's moved into chapters 3 and 4 defending the gospel. And we're about to move into 5 and 6 where he speaks more about how you live out the gospel. He's been telling one overarching story for weeks on end, basically saying you can either live by the law or you can live by the gospel. You can measure yourself based on your performance or God's promise of who he's going to make you. It's, it's the difference between running on a treadmill of spiritual exhaustion and never getting anywhere or being on an escalator of grace that takes you up and finds you getting where you actually wanted to go. And Paul seems to be making the same point over and over and over again, doesn't he? It's like, Paul, you keep saying this law, gospel, the flesh, the spirit, my performance, your promise, week in, week out. And the reason is there's a, a surprising attractiveness to law-based living where I measure myself by my own performance. It appeals to our pride, doesn't it? When I measure myself based on what I've done, I feel a little better about myself because I can say, I have done this. <laughs> That's all of us. And what happens then is we, we sort of submit ourselves to a couple of different judges, or maybe one, where we're, maybe I'm judged by what others think of me, how I'm measuring up, how I'm performing as an individual, as an employee, as a husband or wife, a father, as a mother, and I'm, I'm just riddled with anxiety of how are others perceiving me, because my performance is what matters in defining myself according to them. Or maybe you yourself are the judge, and you just beat yourself down with guilt and with shame because you've not performed like you thought you were supposed to perform. That happens too. Or we see God as the judge who is perhaps angry at us and we're gripped by fear at how he's seeing that I didn't measure up and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. We find ourselves in all of these spots. And what Paul is saying over and over, this is why he keeps repeating, is you can't measure yourself by your own performance. You must not. You can't give even an inch here. Because if you do, if you do, you'll be forever enslaved to it. It's a bit like this. I, I had a job in high school where I worked uh, with basically responding to service tickets. So I remember one day, we were, uh, we're getting some work done. My boss says, hey, take five. So we Take five minutes, we grab a Pepsi, we're, we're sitting down talking, and, uh, and we finish kind of our break, and, and a, a service ticket comes in, and I got up to go, he said, oh, don't do that yet. Said, what, do you, what do you mean? I, like, my Pepsi's all, all gone, we just kind of finished the conversation. He said, look, if you start responding right away to people, you will build an expectation in them that you respond right away every single time. So you gotta sit on this for a little bit here, man. Young pup, you haven't learned yet. You gotta wait, otherwise, if you start responding right away, if you give even an inch, you'll be forever enslaved to responding right away. Yeah, maybe experienced something like that. That's what Paul's saying in our lives. If you give even an inch in defining yourself by your performance, you'll be forever enslaved to measuring up and trying to do better and saying, I've made it or I haven't, and it's all based on me. You'll be enslaved to your own performance, whether it's good or bad. And what Paul's saying here is this same point, the same message we've been delivering over and over and over can actually be found in the story of Hagar and Sarah going all the way back to Genesis. He's saying, oh, you don't want to see your spiritual barrenness? You want to pretend like you're 
kind of okay and kind of got it together and you're doing all right, then let's pull from this story where someone was actually, literally, physically barren to make this abundantly clear for you how much you need grace. So what I want to do from a kind of an outline standpoint this morning is take maybe 10 or 15 minutes and just rehearse the story. Go back to Genesis, walk through a little bit of it, make sure we're clear, because you, you may have read that before, and like, man, that, that Hagar-Sarah bit, it gets confusing to me, I don't know what's going on, and it might be your first time to ever come to church, and you don't know what any of those names mean. So, so let's just rehearse that for a bit, and then we'll, we'll sort of wrap it up with two troubling realities and then two transforming realities. So just enter into the story with me for a second. We go all the way back to Genesis 15. God makes a promise to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. He says, I'm going to give you many offspring, so many they can't be counted. I will give you a son. They rejoice. God has chosen to work through us. This is great. Maybe you've experienced something like that, where you feel like God is saying, I'm going to work through you. But the next chapter, Genesis 16, we pick up, and Abraham is 86 years old, and Sarah is 76 years old, and there's no child feels like we kind of missed the prime years. And, uh, and so what do they do? They take matters into their own hands. They say, oh, no, no, we don't have to do things according to God's promise. Maybe he forgot about us. Maybe we need to, to intervene. Maybe we need to get going. So, so Sarah says, I, I'm too old. I can't be used. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to take Hagar, my servant, and I'm going to give Hagar, my servant, to Abraham, and you sleep together, and that's how God will provide offspring for us. They didn't trust the promises of God, said we're gonna do things our way instead of God's way to get the results we want. That's Genesis 16. The next chapter, we skip 14 years ahead, and we find Abraham is now 100 years old, and Sarah is 90 years old, and God comes back to them and says, I'm gonna give you a son. And they're like, well, we already have a son. His name is Ishmael, Abraham and Hagar, and, and they're like, no, 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 I promised that I would do this my way, not your way. And so 14 years later, God miraculously opens Sarah's womb and gives a son named Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. Before we go a whole lot further, can we just pause and recognize that for a second? Do not close the book on what God can do in and through you because you think you are past the time where you can be used by God. Do not do that. Don't think that because you are 100, 90, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, wherever, that you missed the spot where you were supposed to do something that God can't use you right now. Don't miss it. Don't close that book. There is grace for the barren. And as you can imagine in this story, as Abraham and Sarah have a son together, Isaac, this creates all, all sorts of difficult family tensions where you have Abraham and Sarah and Hagar all sort of trying to figure out how to relate to one another as a family. They're living together under the same roof. And then you've got Isaac and Ishmael trying to figure out how are we supposed to relate to each other? Who's really the firstborn? Who's really the child that will bring the blessing? Who's really the favorite son? That's a mess too. And all of them are trying to figure out how are we supposed to relate to God here? 
Did we do things our way or his way? Did we receive the blessing or are we cursed because of something out of our control? It's, it's a complex situation. And there's all this tension, all this frictions, friction rather. And what Paul's going to say is there are historical realities here that say, look at the barrenness of Sarah and the pain throughout this entire family, and it tells a spiritual reality about every single one of your hearts. Look back at verse 24, please. Paul writes, Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. That that word allegorically can trip us up, can't it? Okay, so did this, is it an allegory? Did that not really happen? The, the challenge here is in English, our word allegory is pretty thin, and the word in the Greek is really thick, where when we hear allegory, we think it is a, fo- a fictional story that carries a deeper meaning. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means it's a story that could be true, could be false, and it carries a deeper meaning. In this case, Paul writes very clearly saying it's a true story. What might be more helpful than allegory is to call it typology. We don't use that word very often, so it's like, what does that mean? Typology is merely this, a historical reality that tells about a spiritual reality. So for context, maybe you think the Old Testament temple, you go to the temple to experience the presence of God. The temple tells us about Jesus. You go to Jesus to experience the presence of God. Historical reality, also a spiritual reality. You go to the temple to receive forgiveness of sins, you go to Jesus to receive forgiveness of sins. That's what typology is getting at, and that's what Paul's saying is going on here. It's a historical reality that also tells us about a spiritual reality. So don't let that word allegory get tripping you up, it's just that the English language is kind of limiting in some of these ways. And what Paul's gonna say is there's two sons given, Isaac and Ishmael, and they both tell you of two ways to live as a Christian. There's two ways. There's the Isaac way, there's the Ishmael way. And, and I get that this passage can be kind of confusing when you work through it, right? Peter, even in uh, 2 Peter 3, Paul, Peter writes about Paul and says, like, our beloved brother Paul, he's really hard to understand. So, so if you read this, you're like, ah, I'm confused here. Like, it's okay, you're right there with Peter. He was having a hard time as well. So to give a little clarity, what I want to do is to put a chart up on the screen, but I want to keep your Bible open so we can kind of look at things at the same time and see how there's one way to live from son number one, Ishmael, and another way to live from son number two, Isaac. The first son, Ishmael, represents life according to the flesh, whereas the second son, Isaac, represents life according to the promise. Look back at verse 23. We read, but the son of the slave, that's Hagar, born to, or Ishmael, born to Hagar, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Okay, there's one represents life according to the flesh, one represents life according to the promise. One had the mother of Hagar, the slave, Ishmael, one had the mother of Sarah, a free woman. Get the next, next spot on the slides there, the, who their mother was. Look at verse 22 now. We read, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So Hagar was a slave, a bit more like a, a, a current context servant. Sarah, however, was a free woman. One Ishmael represents life according to the, uh, the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, and the second son, Isaac, represents life according to Mount Zion, the law of Christ. Back at your copy of the scriptures, verse 24. 
Now, this may be interpreted, interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. That's the left side there. Mount Sinai is where the law of Moses is given. The Old Testament law says, here's how you're supposed to live. And so Paul's saying, Ishmael represents life according to the Old Testament law. On the right side, Mount Zion, the law of Christ, is not explicit in the passage. It's implied you can live either according to the law of Moses and law-keeping and rule-keeping or live in grace according to Christ. The, the last slide we're going to look at here rep says that Ishmael represents present Jerusalem that has rejected Christ, whereas Isaac represents the heavenly Jerusalem that has received Christ and is ruled by Christ. Back at the scriptures, verse 25 now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul's saying, present Jerusalem, Jews who have rejected Christ, they're still in spiritual bondage. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Paul's saying, the way of Isaac is the way of the heavenly Jerusalem that has received Christ and has the freedom in Christ. Okay, so there's a, a bit of clarity that's given there. And the point is this. You can be like the first son, Ishmael. You can live according to the flesh. I mean, let me pause this and kind of zoom back out with me for a second. Say, okay, that's a lot of chart, a lot of information. What's the point, Justin? Let's, let's cut to the chase. You can live like Ishmael. You can live according to the flesh, and for a while, it might look like your way is actually producing spiritual fruit. But don't be deceived. God is not going to be mocked. You will sow, or you will reap whatever you sow. And if you sow towards pride in your spiritual fervor and intensity and accomplishments, you will reap enslavement to the law, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that Christians for a season might live this way. The Galatian Christians had started for a while to live this way. Notice we said there are two ways to live as a Christian. All over this passage is saying, brothers, brothers, sisters, you've come to be known by God. Don't fall back into this old way of living. So Paul's saying Christians might live this way for a season, but they must not continue because if they do continue, then they will show they weren't really Christians. And like the Jews who reject the Messiah will be condemned to hell. The thing is, very few people actually intentionally think about living this way. Like, man, I just want to be defined by the law and my performance, and like, that's how I want to plant my flag. Like, nobody puts that in their Instagram bio. Right? N nobody puts singing to Jesus but trusting in myself. You, you don't see that anywhere. Right? No, it's like, oh, child of the one true king. That's what everybody puts in the bio. So, so the question I think that is really obvious here is like, okay, Paul keeps circling the plane here as if this is a clear and present danger, but it doesn't seem obvious how I would slip into that. So how would I know that I'm starting to live according to the law, that I'm starting to live according to the way of Ishmael, and if that was me, then what would I do about it? Right? That, that's kind of what it leads us to. Like, okay, I kind of get the idea, but how would I know if that's me? How does it change my life? Here's where we get to the two troubling realities. Two troubling realities where we say, I might actually be more spiritually barren than I want to let on, than I want to admit. Both of them found in our passage. Here's the first troubling reality. 
I can try to manipulate God. I can try to manipulate God. This is exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. They took an active intervention to say, I want to get what I want from God. I think God will give it to me. And we can manipulate God to get what we want from him. And for us, it may take an active intervention like it did for Abraham and Sarah. It can also take the form of passive whining like it did for Elijah. Wah, 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 poor me. But you're trying to manipulate God to get what you want from him. This the root there is the same. It puts you at the center instead of God at the center. It's when we start to pray prayers that are more interested in getting God's stuff than it is than prayers that are more interested in getting God himself. It's where we start going to church to secure God's favor, not to enjoy the blessing of God with the people of God. It's where we think that if we'll give just a little bit more, that we can lock in God's pleasure on our lives instead of giving out of the abundance of his grace already given to us. It's are you at the center or is God at the center? And can I take some actions that will manipulate him? What St. Augustine would say is that this is true for all of us in many ways. We are beings, he would say, that are filled with vice but clothed with virtue. It's like I see inside of me that I want to be at the center of my story, and so I'll take a jacket of virtue, of good-looking things, and put it on. Praying, going to church, giving money, and I hope that my virtuous jacket will cover up the vice on the inside of me. And we're all doing this. You want what you want, and God's just your tool to get what you want. And you might say, well, Justin, I, I see Paul saying this over and over, and I'm, I'm still not entirely sure that I'm doing that. Can we just help me understand, like, how might this be me? Well, yes, I, I think that's important for us to do. You know, State Farm says they're here to help life go right. Well, one of the diagnostic questions for us is, when life doesn't go right, or at least not how we think it's supposed to go, how do you respond? The key question here is, is God good for you or merely good to you? Think about that for a second. Is God good for you? It's good for me to be near God. It's good for me to be in his presence with his people. It's good for me to be with God's word. I know that if in that place, God is good for me. But too often we want to say God is merely good to me. He gives me good stuff. And that's how I know his goodness, based on what he gives me. And when the life that I want is not given to me, then I start to doubt his goodness. Another way of saying this would be this. Is God's presence itself enough of a provision, or do you need his presence to get something else from him? Maybe another, another question would be helpful is, how do you do it waiting on God's timing? You want what you want when you want it, or are you able to sit patiently understanding that maybe God is using this season of waiting to give you more of himself so you'll see you need him more than you need his stuff. Friend, if you're impatient with God, you might want his stuff more than you want him, and that's an indicator that you are trying to manipulate God to get what you want. Paul brings this right to the fore and says, hey, if it can happen to Abraham, it can happen to you. You can try to manipulate God. So if that's you this morning, there is grace for you, but you have to confess your sin and repent and turn back to Jesus. That's the first troubling reality, that all of us can try to manipulate God. Here's the second troubling reality. I can persecute grace-abiding Christians. 
I can persecute grace-abiding Christians. Now, that might sound a little bit odd, like, I could do that, Justin? The pastors could do that? The deacons could do that? The church members? Yeah, we could. Let's look back at the passage here and see, see where that comes from. Verse 29 of Galatians 4. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall, in, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You can persecute grace-abiding Christians. What, you go back to Genesis, the, it's a different word that's used besides persecute, it's ridicule. It's Ishmael is ridiculing Isaac, and he's saying, you're not really the firstborn. You're not really the blessed son. He's adding to what's required. Ishmael says, no, I'm really the one who receives the blessing here. In the Galatian church, what happened is there were religious people, a religious group that was forbidding communion from other Christians if they hadn't become Jewish enough. They hadn't embraced Jewish customs. They were saying, you're not really the faithful unless you lean into our version of Christianity, our brand of it. This is the same thing that happened in the New Testament in the parable of the prodigal son, right? The older brother hated the younger brother. He ridiculed him, he persecuted him because the younger brother hadn't kept enough rules and said, you shouldn't be part of this group. You're outside the boundaries here. And there are all sorts of older forms of this that we've seen in the church, even just in my lifetime. You go back a little bit older of, of how do you ridicule other Christians? How do you persecute other Christians? Say you're not really the people of God. You're not really the committed Maybe it used to be something about the kind of clothes you would wear to church or whether there's drums on stage or not or you can have a tattoo or something like that. Like we've, we've seen that. But there's newer forms of tribalism as well that do the exact same thing. That say, you're not really part of the faithful. You're not really the committed. Where you say, you know, just on the ground, practical examples. Like there's a lot of people that'll say, hey, if you like Nine Marks Ministries, you must be a compromiser. And if you like Grace to You Ministries, John MacArthur, then you're a legalist. Like you see this going on all the time saying, guys, there is a temptation in Christianity that's never ending and it's always more subtle than you think. It's a temptation to add to the gospel as a mark of who the faithful are. And James would tell us to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. But that's a lot easier to say than it is to do, isn't it? Listen to how MacArthur would say this. He says, legalists have always been persecutors. Those who trust in God have always been persecuted by those who trust in themselves. True believers have always been more mistreated and oppressed by religionists than by atheists. Here's the point of what this means. If you truly believe in the doctrines of the gospel, I receive grace by faith through Christ and nothing else, then it must produce a gospel culture. It must change how I relate to other brothers and sisters in Christ. I must see Romans 12.10 that I outdo one another in showing honor. Even among our differences, I must take seriously, a church must take seriously, we're in Romans 15. Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And you start to look around and you think, well, these people don't deserve to be shown honor. 
Duh. None of us do. That's the indicator that you've slipped back into law-based living. When you look over and say, this person doesn't deserve to be shown honor, oh, you're measuring them by their performance and probably measuring yourself by your performance, not by the gospel. You see how subtle that is. We feel justified in ourselves. And the, the guys in Galatia were doing that. Paul says it happens to this day. Another way of saying that, I can be an elder brother from the prodigal son. I can look and say, you didn't keep enough rules. You've gone too far towards this crazy behavior. Or you could say you've gone too far towards grace. Don't make either mistake. What what does Paul say, verse 30? He says, cast out the slave woman and her son. Don't submit yourselves to these who are persecuting you. Don't listen to the Judaizers. They're telling you you've got to do this to be a Christian. Don't listen to them. That's what Paul says. So so we look through these troubling realities and we start to see, man, there are subtle ways in each of our hearts that pride sneaks in. We define ourselves by our accomplishments instead of God's grace. And it starts to erode our soul. And we are more spiritually barren than we want to admit. And so Paul says, hey, not only is there troubling realities, there's also transforming realities. There's good news at the end of this race as well, amen? It's about time we get to those. Two transforming realities. Here's the first one. I must confess my barrenness. I must confess it. I can't pretend like it's not there. I need to get it out in the open because the light always overcomes the darkness and I need to bring this to the light and say, yes, I see this in me and I confess it. Galatians 4, 27, look back at your copy of the scriptures. Paul writes, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He says, rejoice, I'm the barren one. And the whole problem was that they wouldn't confess their barrenness. They had to pretend like they had it together. They had to keep the mask on. They couldn't take the mask off about what was really going on in their life. How do I know that? The very first verse of the passage. Look back at 421. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? like, I want to measure myself by what I'm doing. Don't you see what the law requires of you? Don't you see that it requires perfection in your behavior, perfection in your words, perfection in your attitudes, perfection in your thoughts, perfection in your desires? That's impossible. If you guys would just confess, I don't have it together, I need grace, this whole conversation would be different. It's transforming to say, God, I actually don't have it, and I need your grace so badly right now. Oh, I need you. I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, that's what we need. Some of you are here this morning, and you're very well aware of your spiritual barrenness. You can't remember the last time you cracked open a Bible outside of Sunday morning or had a meaningful time of prayer outside of a meal. You know it's been 
months or years since you've evangelized anyone, confessed sins to a brother or sister in Christ, or fasted for even a single meal. Yeah, I don't do any of that stuff. I am spiritually barren. You know that your lust for money, for sex, for power, is what's really animating and driving your life. It's just, I know I need grace. I need to confess this. Can I just tell you, the grace of God is strong enough to enable you to confess that sin both to God and to brothers and sisters in Christ. That is where transformation happens, in the confession of sin. But friends, there's others of us here that may not yet think of ourselves as that spiritually barren. We don't think we're really in a hole that deep. You may have succumbed to law-based living and think, Justin, I'm actually doing okay. I just want to tell you, it is okay to be here and not be okay. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And it is okay to be here and say, Justin, I need grace. I don't have it together. So long as your confession doesn't stop at confession, but it's repentance as well that takes you to Christ. You can't just stop there in wallowing in self-pity. You see, one of the marks of our own sin, our own barrenness, is that we don't see it. So if you're here saying, Justin, I'm not sure I see my own spiritual barrenness, you just offered evidence of your barrenness. <laughs> Here's how Jeremiah would say it. Let's go back to the scriptures. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's the implication there? Not even you can understand it. You don't know how bad you are. That's why the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, would say this. He'd say, learn much of your own heart, and when you have learned all you can, remember that you have seen but a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. See, this, is, this illustrates one of the key differences between coming to Jesus and coming to Uncle Sam. Coming to Uncle Sam, what do you have to do? Prove you're healthy. Then you can be in his army. Coming to Jesus, what do you have to do to be in his army? Admit that you're not healthy. And I'm sure all of you could think of a family member who said, oh yeah, I wanted to serve in the army, and so I was willing to say I was older than I was or cover up my bad eyesight or try and convince them I didn't really have flat feet and say I'm healthier than I was. And you operate the same way with Christ. You try and convince yourself and others and God that you're healthier than you are. And that's the barrier to your transformation. But doesn't the passage also say that you're supposed to rejoice as the barren one? Doesn't that take it up another notch? It's one thing to confess. It's another thing to rejoice. What does that mean? The best way I can think of this uh, is to flip back to a story that my grandfather told me. My grandfather was a genius. He, uh, he worked for IBM and helped develop some remarkable technology for them. Uh, if you're under the age of 30, IBM makes computers and uh, helps people you know, grow in technology. Um, what my grandfather did is he worked on a project that if, um, if you'd lost all movement in your entire body except for your eyes, your eyes were the only thing you could move, that you could still operate an IBM computer with just the movement of your eyeball. I have no idea how that works. But my grandfather also taught elementary Sunday school for decades. A guy that has a, literally a genius brain 
saw the value of teaching third and fourth graders the, scrups, the, the truths of scripture for decade upon decade upon decade. He didn't think it was below him. He knew it was exactly where he ought to be. And he also served in the bus ministry. And, um, and so my grandfather told me a story one time. He, he's with Jesus now. That uh, he, he took a little boy out to dinner after Sunday night church. He'd come on the bus. The boy had, um, he just kind of said a few things that things weren't going well at home and he hadn't been able to eat much recently. So they went to McDonald's, and they bought two cheeseburgers, one for my grandpa and one for this little boy. And uh, my grandpa took a bite and looked over, and the boy asked him a question, and he took another bite, and the boy still had not taken a bite. And uh, he said, it's okay, you can eat your cheeseburger. Go ahead. He said, I don't know. Grandpa takes his third bite, looks over, and uh, says, no, it's okay, you can really eat your cheeseburger. The boy's still not taking a bite. And he says, I've got five brothers and sisters at home and they haven't had anything to eat today either. So I'm gonna save it and share it with them. My grandpa says, they're a dollar. You can all have four. I'll get as many as we need. I didn't know we had these kind of need. And why? I wish I I could have been there. My grandpa tried to tell me the look of wonderment in this little boy's eye when he saw that he could have four cheeseburgers. Why did he rejoice in the cheeseburger? because he was so well aware of his barrenness. It's only when you see how barren you are spiritually that you can rejoice because God's grace has broken through to you. And maybe the barrier to your joy in the Christian life is that you still are arching your back and fighting against seeing how spiritually dark your own heart is. That's why Dane Ortland would say it this way. If you felt yourself to be lovely... You could feel loved to a degree, but you could not be astonished with how you are loved. It's precisely our messiness that makes Christ's love so surprising, so startling, so arresting, and thereby so transforming. Friends, it's the reality that God works through the barren. He doesn't look down and say, who are the all-stars, and I'll draft them onto my team. No, he doesn't look down at people that are equipped and call them. No, he looks down at people that are unequipped and recognize they're unequipped, and he calls them and says, I'll equip you. You don't worry about that. Just come to my team. Come to me. Another way of saying it is that God is more concerned with your availability than your ability. That's why we just sang a few minutes ago, to this I hold my hope is only Jesus. It's not me. It's not anything I bring to the table. No. No. Friend, I wonder if your action point this morning isn't to simply say, Pastor, I've been on the sidelines, kind of because I think I've got a lot to give and maybe I don't know what's going on here. Maybe I think I've got something to give and I think I'm in a pretty good shape, but I just want to make myself available to God. So God, I'm all yours. Whatever time I have, whatever talents I have, whatever treasure I have, it's all yours. I'm available. Will you equip me and send me for the work? Maybe that's your action point this morning. There is transformation in confessing your spiritual barrenness. That's the first transformational reality. Here's the second transformational reality. I must cling to Christ to walk in freedom. I must cling to Christ to walk in freedom. Remember a second ago I said, mere confession is insufficient. You must also cling to Christ. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1 in your copy of the scriptures. Paul writes, for freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, Christ came to free me from the guilt and from the brow-beating anxiety of performance-based living. It's exhausting, and Paul wants you, and more importantly, God wants you to be freed from it. That's why the great hymn writer, Charles Wesley, what would he say? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. In other words, what Wesley knew is that Jesus died and canceled the power of sin, but that sin still seems to be powerful in our life, and Christ is here right now to break the power of the sin that's already been canceled at the cross. You've got to cling to him, amen? And what it also recognizes and explicitly states is that works-based living always leads us to enslavement. Because when I define myself based on how I'm doing, then when I'm doing well, I have to keep up. Many of your jobs work this way. I met my numbers this week, this month, this quarter, and because I met them, I feel the pressure as soon as that quarter is over, I've got to do it again, and again, and again. And if I don't keep up, then I'm in trouble. That's not how your relationship with Christ works. You will be enslaved to the crushing pressure of do more, do more, be better. It's a weight your soul cannot sustain. And if you are struggling spiritually and you're used to defining yourself according to your performance, it'll be crushing. I'm worthless. I have no value. God could never use me. He knows the things I've done, the things I've said, the things I've thought. That's who I am. Friend, it's not who you are in the gospel. It's not who you are in Christ. Paul says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke? Slavery? What exactly does that mean? See two oxen walking through a field, plowing, and they put a yoke on them, and what does the yoke do? It guides and directs their life. It guides and directs their action. Is your life guided and directed by your performance or by Christ's performance? Because the yoke of slavery is the one that is defined by you and how you're doing. And the yoke of freedom that comes from Christ is where Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. The spiritually exhausted. Come and learn from me, Jesus would say. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I have fulfilled the law. I've raised the bar in many ways because I've been perfect, but I'm giving you my perfection and you can be defined by me instead of by you. But notice what else Paul says there. In chapter five, verse one, if you look down, look down there is a two-word phrase I'd like you to underline or circle. It says, stand firm. You just circle that, underline it, do something with it. In essence, here's what Paul's saying. He says, in Christ, I've been freed from my former pursuit of pagan idolatry, the pursuit of money, sex, power, prestige, worth that used to define me. And I could slip back into that, so I stand firm. I cling to Christ, saying, Jesus, you're better than those things. You died to put those sins to death. And as I cling to Christ, I grow into Christ's likeness and I face a different set of temptations that as 
God sanctifies me by his spirit as I become more like Jesus, then I start to feel better because I'm doing better and the temptation on the other side of religious superiority comes in, say, no, you must also stand firm, lock those feet in, cling to Christ. It's not me, it's Christ in me. It takes effort. It's another way of saying if, if somebody says it's all of grace, that's true, but it doesn't negate effort. It rightly orders your effort. Your effort is then to cling to Christ, not to anything else. And it's hard to not cling to anything else. Because we're constantly looking for something else to grab onto. If we merely confess our weakness, our barrenness, our spiritual emptiness, then it does lead us to despair. Because then we're defined by our guilt or our shame. And you say, no, I'm not defined by that. Christ took my guilt and all of my shame on the cross so I would not be defined by that. If you define yourself by your circumstances, you could say, I'm defined by my suffering or my abuse. And Jesus says, no, I came and died. I took the worst suffering and the worst abuse so you would be freed from that and you can be defined by me. You say, Justin, I see my past sins, my anger, my adultery that I've committed, and I am not wanting to be defined by that. And Jesus says, I came, I died, I put those sins to death so you could be defined by me, not by your past sins. So you don't merely confess, you also cling to Christ. But if you merely strive for godliness, you're also going to miss the boat. You'll be an older brother. You will feel superior to others. So that you can say, I'm not defined by my purity, I'm defined by Christ who is forever more pure than anything I could offer. And say, I'm not defined by my giving, I'm defined by Christ's blood, which was a much greater gift than anything I could ever give. I'm not defined by my hospitality, I'm defined by Christ's hospitality and how he welcomed me. So that whether I feel good or I feel bad, I come as the hymn writer said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That's the message of Galatians 4. There is grace for the barren. And you can have a bad week and be barren, and you can have a supposedly good week and be barren, and there's grace for you wherever you're at. So as we go to communion... If you're not a Christian, you've never confessed your sin to God and cried out to him to be your savior, don't take communion, this isn't for you. But it's a great time to cry out and ask for forgiveness, because if you do, Jesus will save you. I would urge you to do that. And if you are here as a Christian, we talked about two transforming realities. Dwell on those. Confess your barrenness to God and cling to Christ above all else that he would transform your heart. And as you cling to him on the cross, eat the bread that represents his body and drink the juice that represents his blood. We'll give you a few, sil a few minutes of silence to ponder these things. And then we can continue in worship through communion. Let's pray.